the story of the movement of Arab workers, I have known it for a long, long time. Uh, the story behind Foreign Office, I have known it for a long, long time. There is something that um, is not necessarily known in the context of the global north, is that migrants or members of migrant communities, they have histories. It's just that they are rarely asked to tell them. But I'm not an exception. <laughs> A lot of people know those stories. It's just that they are not given the opportunity to tell them. So the question for me is whether why they are not given the opportunity to tell them, instead of how do you find them? I don't find them, I have inherited them. And I'm not an exception, we are millions. I mean, I have said it uh, many times when I'm asked that question. Uh, my mother told me something very true when she saw for the first time a solo exhibition of mine. She told me, you, you, are, you are telling the stories of people like us. What she meant by people like us means people who are told that they don't have a history or people who, whose history was suppressed or is suppressed. So, yes, of course, there is a strong personal element in that. But what my mother said is that it's not only personal, because she didn't say you said, you, you tell the stories, you tell our stories. She also meant that, but she said the stories of people like us, so she includes a lot of people. And that's actually what I, what I hope for, that others can identify with it as well. Who really speaks when someone speaks? asked Bushra Khalili. In the 1970s, this question was also asked by filmmaker and poet Pierpaolo Pasolini, embodying the figure of the civil poet who owns his own words and addresses the community, aware of the transformative power of the encounter between the individual and the collective. Something similar occurs with the narrators that Khalili brings together in her pieces. They tell their own life stories, but in doing so, they connect to those of their communities of origin, stories of migration and constant movement. She weaves them together into stories in which interrogating the past and the present makes it possible to project possible futures, an emancipatory gesture of collective fabulation that also challenges viewers. Bushra Khalili was born in Casablanca in 1975 and grew up between Morocco and France. She studied film and fine arts in Paris and currently lives in Berlin. Through a practice that combines documentary, conceptual art, installation and oral storytelling, Khalili explores questions of self-representation, political agency and the resistance strategies of individuals and communities rendered invisible by the colonial, oppressive, and exclusionary dynamics of nation-states. Who is a witness? Who tells the story? Who documents, archives, and transmits the accounts that reach us? 
These are the central questions that run through all of Khalili's work. In this podcast, we talk to Bushra Khalili about what it means to produce images and to approach film and documentary practice from new places and perspectives. Khalili also reflects on ways of working with stories with no archive. How can we narrate what is missing and embody absence? She defends the power of storytelling, choral and multilingual, and highlights the narrative possibilities of montage and constellations. One could ask in a film or in a video, let's say in a cinematic work or in a work in moving image that, that involves sound, the question could be when someone speaks, who speaks? Um, if we take as an example fiction, um, the ones who speak are the characters. Um, but they are also speaking the words of an author um, so they are literally characters. Um, in my practice, the relationship to fiction is more loose, is, uh, is not emphasized. Um, I would rather define it as forms of potential collective fabulations. But this has also a strong relationship to a specific tradition of um, cinematic practices uh, that deal with documentary strategies. Uh, that is not exactly documentary practices, but rather how to reformulate the relationship to the capture of reality so as not to reflect it as such, but rather to involve in it um, um, forms of method to narrate it in the, in the first place and in the second place, um, involve as well a reflection on what does it mean to produce a picture? What does it mean to produce moving images? And what does it mean to work with sound uh, as well? So to, to give more like uh, practical uh, um, examples, often in my works, the protagonist perform themselves. But the self that is being performed uh, is not captured as in a documentary way. It's a performance of the self, and that is very different. Um, so of course they speak their own word, but speaking their own word, they are, they, those words are not improvised. Uh, they are the, the result of a long collaborative process uh, that comes before the, the making of the, of the artworks. So they are in a sort of um, space in between being themselves on a film set, let's say, and at the same time, very, very much conscious that they are performing themselves and performing themselves, they also perform the consciousness that their singular position is already a collective voice through the, the, this process of performance. So um, to go back to, the, to this question of who speaks when someone speaks, 
in film, or at least in my filmic works. It is the protagonist in the same place, but they are also very much conscious that they, that they, they, they do not speak a voice alone. They speak the voice of a potential collective. And that potential collective is first made of the suppressed communities or the silenced, silenced communities to which they origin, originally belong. But that potential collective is also the collective that is being made by the viewers who are somehow already included in that, uh, in that potential community. So when I relate to the notion of, um, of witnessing, what they bear witness to is first to their own position, uh, because their positions are defined, um, they are clear, and at the same time, they bear witness to a potential future um, that can come to, into, into being. So the, the works are also meditation on potential futures as well. So the witnesses we are talking about do not only bear witness to the past, they also bear witness to a potential future. Um, and that's the tension that is being um, um, developed um, throughout the, the process of collaborating, but also throughout the process of making the, 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 the works. Um, and that goes um, into the, the exhibition space as, as well, in the sense that the viewers are part of this. Um, I was referring first to the notion of collective fabulation. Um, that's, um, that's something that uh, Gilles Deleuze spoke very eloquently about when he, um, he analyzed the specifics of um, um, documentary works produced in colonial contexts or in the immediate uh, uh, independence or in the context of um, uh, African-American cinema, uh, this idea that moving image uh, can be the space where oppressed minorities can fabulate collectively a becoming. Um, so in that space, the notion of documentary is no longer relevant because you are already projecting yourself into a future. It's not only about uh, making statements on the present time. The gesture of collective fabulation is also emancipatory in that sense, because you are giving yourself the freedom to fabulate a future, to fabulate an emancipatory future. And to start fa fabulating that uh, emancip uh, emancipatory future, you also need to start from your own position and acknowledge this is the situation, but it can be, it can be different. It can become different, so let's project a collective future. How, uh, how can we make it together? How can we make it possible? Nevertheless, acknowledging what is the past we are coming from and not turning our back to that past, but rather looking straight to that past in order to project that potential future. So it's almost a form of dialectics in a, in a way. It takes time. It's not something that you can improvise. Um, so when I produce something, I usually spend a lot of time in the literally months in the in the place where I will be producing that work.
So as an example, the Tempest Society was made in Athens, uh, but the project existed as a project um, even before Documenta. I started working on it in 2012. And in 2012, for me, it was clear that it had to happen in Athens because of the, um, the crisis that Greece was going through. And that somehow for me was an, one among other, but one very visible epitome of the, the collapse of a certain conception of the European Union. Um, so for me, it was clear that uh, that peace should be produced in Athens, but also in relationship to the historical um, position of Athens. Uh, the birth of uh, democracy, the birth of the, city, the notion of citizen and the relationship between the birth of democracy and the notion of citizen with uh, theater um, that was conceived in the ancient Greek tradition as a civic space. So during um, um, performances that could last a week, the civic life was contaminating the 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 performance and the site of the theater so i i had this in my mind for for quite some time and then the invitation to participate in documenta came at the ending of 2015 and i was like okay it this is the time now that i produce that work that i, I have been uh, uh, working on for already a few years uh, but to produce it i moved to athens <laughs> for almost uh, a year. Um, so this process, you, you cannot improvise it. You have to immerse yourself in a specific um, space, get to know it. Um, I even uh, learned some Greek to, like I, I subtitled the film myself. <laughs> it's entirely spoken in Greek, almost. Um, So it requires time, it requires uh, patience, and it also requires to closely listen to the protagonist of, of the work. Because as, uh, as I was saying before, they perform themselves, but they perform a self that they know is becoming a public voice. And this is a completely different situation when you know that you are, that you are becoming a public voice. Um, so the whole process is, is literally about that, um, working with, um, closely with uh, Elias, Yanis, and Isabella was first to literally transmit to them the, the story of uh, Al-Asifa and the movement of Arab workers so they could completely appropriate it. Um, I shared all the research uh, with them uh, and we had a lot of conversations about um, how I perceived not similarities, but echoes or resonances and how they, they perceive other echoes and other resonances. So the scripting of it becomes completely organic. Um, but it's also more complicated than that. Um, because at some point, as an example in the film, Elias reads from a book his own testimony 
as written by an Albanian novelist who migrated to Greece, Greece in the 90s. So in that scene, you see like the dialectical um, contradiction of that very method being represented. Um, Elias reading his own words written by someone else, are these still Elias' words? Uh, and at the moment Elias is reading them, who is he performing? Is he performing Elias here and now? Or is he performing Elias from 10 years ago when the book was written? Or is this another Elias that is a public Elias? Because that Elias is in a book. Um, but I made it even more complex with um, asking that novelist, uh, Gazmet Kaplani, who couldn't join us because at first I wanted him to come on the set and to discuss exactly this. You, as someone who migrated, who were forced to migrate illegally to Greece in the early 90s, when you became a novelist in Greece, you wrote your first book about Europe as seen from the perspective of um, migrants who are denied the right to citizenship in Greece. But he couldn't come on the set because he was in the United States and he could not travel because he didn't have the papers to be able to do that because he was not a Greek citizen there yet, 20 years after. I told him, okay, you cannot come, but what about sending me a letter that is addressed to me, but that will be read by the protagonist in the film. So you will be represented through their voice and they will be reading the letter you are writing to me. And he liked the, he liked the idea. So even him, at some point becomes the subject of, um, um, of a performance of others who are nevertheless representing him, but also representing them and also representing me. Because they are listening, they are, they are reading the letter, and, but they are also listening to other parts of the letter re read by uh, another member of the, of the group. So this, um, this question is literally the subject of 10 minutes of film, when you see the positions shifting from one to, to another, first person speaking, then becoming the witness of another first person uh, speech. And that circulates to the point of uh, questioning the, the, the notion of um, taking that book as a, as a starting point. Even in a book that states that these are the words of interviewees, this is also potential collective fabulation. If the person who was the subject starts to read it 10 years after, you are, you are literally in the becoming because it's no longer the same person. Um, it's already someone else. But what he's talking about is certainly the present time of someone else who can identify with it. So it's multi-layered.
Uh, it's a bit complicated because um, I cannot say we are talking about the difference between documentary fiction, the notion of methods. Um, I don't make documentaries, but I don't make fictions either. Um, and there, there is no script as uh, as it is uh, commonly understood in uh, in in filmmaking. Um, the script comes only after the editing is done. <laughs> I do it the other way around. Um, nevertheless, it's always very uh, carefully prepared um, and planned and so on and so forth. But there is a large space left to the unexpected. But because preparation takes a lot of time, I, I give myself the possibility of um, integrating many things that were not necessarily uh, part of the project uh, uh, first. Now to, to relate more specifically to the position of the storyteller, we started with the position of the witness who, who speaks when someone speaks in a film, who is, uh, who is a witness. Somehow it's the same question uh, with who is a storyteller. Um, in the place from where I come from, the storyteller is a, um, the public storyteller um, is a long tradition. It existed in, the, in Europe as well with the troubadour, exactly the same thing, like nomadic storyteller going from one place to, to another. Um, and historically, those public storytellers uh, encapsulated the memory of a community. But encapsulating the memory of a community doesn't mean that it has to stay to where it originally belonged. It also means that it can travel to other places. Uh, and historically, that's also how um, knowledge, uh, and that is not the knowledge produced from sites of power, also traveled and uh, was taught in, uh, in different places. In Morocco, this is a very powerful uh, tradition, uh, and I'm old enough to have witnessed it myself. So I grew up listening to public, uh, public storytellers. So most probably what I learned from them is this um, very agile um, way to articulate the most vernacular uh, with the um, scholarly because their performances were literally a montage of different genres uh, in different languages, um, often mixing them um, without even like um, uh, making any form of transition from one language to, to another. It was uh, extremely fluid. It also reflected in a beautiful way the great linguistic and cultural diversity, diversity of Morocco, where different languages are spoken. Um, and it's also a beautiful tradition because uh, it's, it's oral in the first place. But those oral storytellers or those public storytellers were also the oral writer of, uh, of the memory, the present, as well of different communities and traveling from one, one place to, to another. So I, I like thinking that I most certainly learned from them this um, method of storytelling that is somehow um, not linear, as it is often um, meant, um, let's say, in the global north, that the story must have a beginning and an ending. 
Um, in this tradition, the story has no ending. <laughs> it's, it's circular. Uh, and actually, the storyteller usually don't tell the ending of the story because he wants you to come back the day after. So he, if he gives you the, the, the final ending of the story, you won't come back. He wants you to come back. And we want to keep listening to the stories. So if we listen to the ending of the story, there's no reason to come back. But what we enjoy is to actually the repetition of the story in different ways. So the, the great talent and the wonderful skill of those uh, our, uh, public storytellers is also how they constantly rewrite the stories because they do have a repertoire. They don't improvise. Um, but they know how to recombine the components of a, of a story. Um, and that is something that I highly admire in their, uh, in their craft. Uh, this, uh, this knowledge that a story, a good story don't necessarily need an ending and a good story can be re-articulated, reformulated, re-edited, recombined, and so on and so forth. So, of course, it's, it probably influenced and shaped my own relationship to filmic material um, because this is somehow uh, avant-garde writing even before it existed. Um, the difference is that this is how we tell stories. Uh, this is how we were educated also to listening to stories. And when I started working with moving image, um, I kept, it probably stayed somewhere in my mind and probably influenced the way that I relate to um, language first. Um, because I come from that context of declosia or even triclosia. Um, and a relationship also to uh, stories that is both oral and also um, written. But there's no contradiction between the two. Um, in the exhibition, as an example, Kateb Yassin, the Algerian novelist, uh, is represented through um, a, a triptych of photographs. Uh, and he's also the central subject of the last chapter of Foreign Office. Um, and Kateb Yassin defined himself as a public writer. He didn't say an, a public storyteller, story he said a public writer. But somehow it's not that different. Um, a public writer is someone who writes the words of others who cannot write. Um, he stands at a small desk and people come to him and tell him, can you read this letter for me or can you write that letter for me? Um, so there is a wonderful sense of modesty in that, uh, in that position, but also a beautiful statement about uh, what is a writer. A writer do not possess the words. The words are public. He's, he's the one who is writing them down, but it doesn't mean that he owns those words. The public storyteller, it's the same thing. He disseminates the words. He disseminates the stories. He disseminates the methods for narrating them and so on and so forth. So I see it's not, it's not by chance if this statement of a Maghrebi writer defining himself as a public writer, 
most probably has a strong relationship with this tradition of uh, oral storytelling, public oral storytelling that we that we have uh, in the Maghreb, in uh, in North Africa. So I also identify myself with uh, with this relationship to a fluid navigation between what is oral, what is uh, written, um, and how those words need to be disseminated. Uh, and there are methods for that. Public storytelling is one method. Embodying the position of the public writer is another method. So we, we are talking here about historical forms of um, um, telling stories or writing stories or disseminating stories. There are like recurring ghosts in my works. Um, I mentioned Kateb Yassin, uh, the novelist. Uh, Pierpaolo Pasolini is another one. Um, Jean Genet, uh, Carol Rosopoulos. So they, they come back uh, in different works and in different way, and sometimes not necessarily in a very obvious way. But um, what, is, uh, what is great with, um, with a show that brings different works together is that you see the connections. Um, for me, the show here at Magba is not a show made of several works, it's one work that is unfolded throughout many other works. So as an example, in the Magic Lantern, the starting point is um, the lost uh, work by Carol Rousseau-Poulos, the pioneer of um, media activism and feminist video, who became a video maker because Jean Genet told her buy a porta pack. <laughs> Jean Genet, who is in other works, um, and she made her first video with Jean Genet, traveling with him um, to uh, Amman in the immediate aftermath of uh, uh, Black September. Um, and the massacre of Palestinian refugees by um, the, the army of King uh, Hussein. So she made that first video with him. But in Foreign Office that was produced eight years <laughs> before Magic Lantern. Yeah, eight years before Magic Lantern. Uh, Carol's camera is already mentioned, but it's another story around Carol's camera that is mentioned in Foreign Office is how it was used by the Black Panthers to make a film in Congo. But it's the same camera. Um, so speaking of ghosts, yeah, they are haunting me, haunting my work, and they reappear in different situations to tell other things, but all of them are completely interrelated. Um, but the starting point of Magic Lantern was that lost video. She made her first film that was destroyed 
because she showed it. At that time, video makers were not making masters. They were not duplicating anything. The same tape that was used for uh, making the, the piece was the one that was being used to show it. Um, and I was always fascinated by this idea. Um, and I have the great privilege to, to know her, her daughter. So um, this was confirmed that at that time they were not making masters. And um, so I, it stayed in my mind for, for, for a long time. Um, but I remember years ago looking at, uh, at her porte-a-pack um, and thinking it's strange how much it looks like a magic lantern. Um, the thing is that when I was a very young um, film and media studies um, student in Paris, I used to attend um, seminars of uh, um, world experts of um, uh, machines um, prefiguring cinema. Uh, they call it dispositif du pré-cinéma in French. So, uh, yeah, like more than 20 years ago, I was attending the seminar of uh, Laurent Manoni at the French Cinematheque. And Laurent Manoni is the um, uh, head of collections of uh, um, all the machines uh, that were invented um, and that led to the invention of cinema, including Magic Lantern and, uh, and other beautiful machines. Um, and I was completely um, fascinated by those devices and uh, because they were uh, combining projected imagery with storytelling. It was a performance, um, but with machines that were made of wood, lenses, um, and the lanternists were also nomadic storytellers. So for I don't know what reason, I started to see a connection between the tradition of the nomadic lanternist and Carole traveling literally all over the world to bear witness to groups uh, that were um, oppressed, um, such as the Black Panthers, uh, both in Algiers and in New York, um, group of women in uh, Brazil, uh, Puerto Ricans in the United States, um, among others. Um, and she started with Palestinian refugees in, uh, in Jordan. So something clicked in my head. It was like, there is a connection and I need to make that work. So I understand what is the connection. Um, yeah, as simple as that. It's, a, it's an intuition that develops into um, something more material. Um, and of course, each component of the, of the work refers specifically to how Carole defined herself. So the, the textile <laughs> referred to her, um, referring to herself as a weaver. And as, again, as someone from Morocco, Weaving has also been historically a way for Moroccan women to tell their stories in their carpets. Of course, when they are sold here in the, in the, in the West, people don't necessarily know the language of that, uh, of that textile.
but I can read the language of that textile. So I, I know, uh, not only from where it comes from, but what the story is about. Because all the patterns have a very specific uh, um, symbolic si signification. And she knew that as well, because she spent a lot of time in Tunisia. <laughs> so most probably, when she spoke of, of herself as a weaver, she had in mind those Tunisian women with whom she spent a lot of time. Um, and who were also most probably weaving as well. Or when she defined herself as a public writer. So it's interesting that her, a pioneer of fem feminist video making, who used her camera to stand in solidarity with um, um, anti-colonial groups, um, spoke of herself the same way as uh, Katsab Yassin, who started writing under um, French colonization and at the, the, the beginning of the Algerian Revolution. So even in that work, there are others. It seems to relate only to Carole, but there are other people there. Um, however, I'm not sure if I would still use the, the notion of ontology, because as, a, as an image maker, as an example, when I edit a film, I have a ghost sitting next to me. Uh, and who are leading my hands. And these ghosts are, belong to film history. That's how I learned watching their films. So when I edit a film, they are with me, around me. So ghosts are alive. They don't die. <laughs> As I was saying before, dialectics is important to me because mo editing montage is also a matter of dialectics. It's not linear. It's, it has to um, provoke contradictions as well and sorts of conflicts. Um, so in the, in the piece, the Nancy, the storyteller, who one can also consider as one representation of the ghost of Carol, she also speaks of the use of the magic lantern during the colonial era and the colonial expansion. But she also mentions how an, a woman in the late 19th century used the magic lantern to denounce the colonial crimes committed in Congo. So it's not uh, like a one-sided uh, thing. Um, the lantern had, um, or at least how I, I approached it, because it's a very specific type of uh, magic lantern performance that is referred to in, the, in that piece, and that is Phant Phantasmagoria. And Phantasmagoria was about bringing, making the voices, um, making lost voices speak in public. But the lost voices that um, he, the Phantasmagoria was dealing with were the voices of uh, recently deceased uh, French revolutionaries. Because Phantasmagoria was invented literally in the immediate aftermath of the French Revolution, 1793, uh, 1794. Um, and for um, Parisians committed to the French Revolution, it was also a way to keep paradoxically alive the spirit of the revolution with allowing the voices of the deceased revolutionaries to speak again in public. 
So it's not, uh, it's one specific type of uh, magic lantern performance that acknowledged the power of the ghosts <laughs> in the first place. Uh, and the power of uh, the, the, the way they uh, haunt us in the present time, but they also haunt already the future. So in the, in the process of the magic lantern, yes, we start with phantasmagoria, but we also go through um, the appropriation of that potentially, potentially emancipatory technology by um, the colonial expansion, but also how others are capable of retrieving the original vocation of that technology because it was also a technology. So um, Alice Harris is mentioned in, in there precisely for how she reappropriated the power of that projected imagery combined with storytelling to denounce colonial crimes, while at the same time colonial powers were starting to use the magic lantern to popularize the colonial uh, expansion. So it, it also like includes a sort of meditation on uh, technology, how it is uh, the, the subject of appropriation, how it can be reappropriated for um, the perspective of collective emancipation um, and, um, and so on and so forth. So it's also about history as a series of conflict and as a series of uh, contradictions, something that is not linear. Well, the, the reason why I started with saying that I don't make documentaries is because when I film something, I know how it will be edited already. So I literally shoot for editing. The important aspect of knowing um, how it will be edited is also that you can explain it to the protagonist. So they know exactly what is the shot before, what is this one, what is the one coming after. So I don't give myself the final word in the editing room, which I, I could do as, <laughs> as someone editing. It's easy. You accumulate material and then you cut, 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 cut. Um, but I do exactly the opposite. I don't start filming unless I know exactly how it will be edited. So I can tell them how it, how it, it will be edited. Um, in a conversation with Elias, Yanis and uh, Isabella, 
that was published in a in a book called the Tempest Society, same title as the as the work. They they actually say it even uh, um, better than uh, than me. For them, filming was no surprise because they knew every single thing. So when I speak of editing or montage, uh, I don't speak of the technical process. I speak of the more of the pro the sort of conceptual intellectual process of combining things together. And that's most certainly the reason why I don't ha I, we don't need to have a script on the, on the, on the set. Uh, because what matters is the articulation and the combination of cinematic shots. That's how it is made. Now, uh, let's say my visual style can seem a bit odd because it doesn't play on the what uh, Serge Danet, the uh, film critic, used to call the cinema effect. Uh, and he was talking about this in the 80s, like with a shift of, uh, of, uh, of cinema highly influenced by advertising. It really transformed uh, filmmaking. Um, and he, start, he, he defined this, those new cinematic forms info, inf, uh, influenced by uh, advertising as films based on producing a cinema effect. So it looks like cinema, but it's not cinema. Um, as, a, as a visual artist, I still ask myself, what is cinema? Um, but if I ask myself what is cinema, it also means that I know that cinema is not cinema effect. That it's not enough that it looks like a film, so it is a film. It's some, it, making a film is something else. So I'm, I'm looking for that. I'm searching. So what is a film exactly? Um, for me, a film, and we have seen it in, in film history, um, can be a film e even without pictures, e even without images. Like if you, if you think of one of the early, maybe the first film by Guy Debord uh, called Hurlement Faveur de Sade, there are no pictures, but it's cinema. <laughs> it's very powerful cinema as well, uh, because it's cinema that suggests a new age of cinema that would be sonic. Could it be that cinema is a sonic form? With that work, yes, it's possible. Um, or if you think of one of the last movies by Marguerite Duras called L'Homme Atlantique, half of the movie is black pictures, empty screen. Um, so I, I tend to more relate, let's say, to a tradition of filmmaking um, that tries to understand filmmaking not as something resembling to what is usually conceived as cinema, um, as an example here in the exhibition at Macbeth, there is no black box. <laughs> so my way, paradoxically, to uh, acknowledge my strong relationship to film history is to not using a black box. So to refuse to mimic the uh, cinema situation in a museum. Because for me, it, it somehow contradicts my own, uh, my own practice. So could it be that cinema is not made only for people who sit but that is also made for people who walk. <laughs> Could be. We, we, it's something we can try, you know. So I like the idea that cinema can also be made for
people walking, who make the decision to sit, um, and who can move on to something else, uh, walking. So, in those uh, in those visual forms uh, with the four to three screen ratio, only static shots. Um, composed, precisely framed, and so on and so forth, there is uh, indeed a refusal of the cinema effect. Um, and rather an emphasis on a potential conception of filmmaking that could be summarized as such, showing something to someone. So you can consider that a cinematic shot is a gesture. It's not a picture, it's a gesture. I'm showing you this. So it's certainly not by chance if you see in my works, a lot of people showing things with their fingers and their hands. But that's exactly what I do when I edit a film, I do that. Or when we work, when we collaborate before the filming, that's exactly what we do. So the films are extremely transparent uh, in relation to their uh, methods of production. Well, often I research unarchived stories. Mm. So when you research unarchived stories, you don't go to a repository and you ask for that box to be open. There is no box. <laughs> what you find is just a few things. That's it. And you have to work with that. Uh, so of course I research for years. Um, they are not archives. And they are not treated as such. No one is wearing gloves in the films. <laughs> They're just, uh, it's pieces of paper. Most of the time, or indeed things that are on mobile phone, but the hand is always present. Because it's, it's still a matter of gesture, showing something to someone. Um, and that someone is, of course, also the spectator. For the Tempest Society and the Circle, it originates from the same, uh, the same story, the movement of Arab workers and its theater groups. But they don't have an archive. And the reason why they don't have an archive is, that they, is because they were Maghribi factory workers who did not have their own apartments where they could store things. That's the first reason. The second reason is that they were um, trying to activate the community and make it move um, and create a sense of belonging um, and challenge French society so they could be perceived as equals with the right to have equal rights at work, housing, etc. That was their main focus. So only one of them donated his own uh, archives, Said Bouziri, 
who was one of the founder of the movement of Arab workers. But Said was not part of the theater groups. Uh, for them, autonomy is, was also very important, and they applied autonomy uh, also in relationship to each other. So the theater groups originating from the movement of Arab workers um, was, was made of the same people, but at the same time, Saeed, who was not a member of a theater group, did not necessarily archive everything from the, from the theater groups. So it took me literally years and I found um, elements in places completely unexpected. You would not suspect that they may have traces of the performances of the theater groups or um, their presence in the city for performing or their participation in an occupation um, in support of, uh, uh, of Maghrebi workers uh, going on strike and so on and so forth. So, of course, the archives in my works uh, do not look fancy <laughs> because they, these are the stories of people who were um, not in the uh, situation allowing them to document what they were doing. So how do you work on the unarchive? How, how do you work with the suppressed? How do you work with what has left only a few traces? And this is how montage becomes a powerful tool. Because you can take that little material that you could collect, nevertheless, you can rearticulate things. And it can reappear multiple times in completely different ways. And this is how the relationship to constellation is um, so central as well in my practice. It's literally a way of thinking. It's a method for thinking. Um, but that starts from a huge challenge. How do you narrate what was not archived? And that's also the reason why I do not identify myself at all with archival practices. Because I don't have archives. I don't work with body of, of archives. I rather work with what has not been archived. So how do you work with what is missing with the absence In 2019, the IMEC, uh, the, the Institute of the Memory of Contemporary Publishing, um, received the donation of two suitcases that belonged to Jean Genet and that were kept unopened for almost 40 years. By chance, the head, the artistic head of the Institute, is a friend and he called me immediately and he told me come to Paris immediately because this is what we received you have to see it so I went to Paris and I, I got the feeling that those suitcases were containing the workshop of prisoner of love so I asked him I told him Albert um, I think this is the workshop of Prisoner of Love. And he told me that's exactly what I think. I also think that this is the... And he told me that th soon this will go to the archives. And I asked him the permission to take pictures of the suitcases. But Albert was extremely surprised because I didn't take the picture of the papers. I take the pictures of the reverse side of the paper. 
because what is written on the papers, anyone will be able to read it in a matter of weeks. But what will disappear is the ghostly presence of the archives. That will disappear. So what should be documented is that, is the haunting presence of that writing that is not yet an archive. It's before it will become an archive. That's the reason why I didn't want to take pictures of the um, front side, because this will become object of research for anyone willing to understand the process of Genet and how he writes. On the, on the contrary, what uh, uh, captured my imagination was this is the last moment when this will exist before it will become an archive. And that's what I tried to capture. And what I also tried to capture in the um, writing method of Genet is its visual um, presence. Because when I saw those papers, it's strips of papers, uh, taken out from um, newspapers, whatever paper he could, uh, he could find. And I was uh, extremely intrigued by the way they were arranged. They looked like collage. Um, so I saw, I saw the sweet case a first time and I came back uh, with a photo camera a few days after. And in the meantime, I was uh, thinking of those collage, those things that resembled to collage. And then I remembered that they looked, they, they reminded me of the, um, the collage of Matisse, the, the, the ones made with scissors, um, the uh, cuts out, the paper cuts out. And then I remembered that uh, Genet had stolen in the 60s the portrait of Matisse made by Giacometti. Because Genet had the keys of, he was the only one um, who had the key of uh, Giacometti uh, stu uh, studio beside Giacometti himself. And Giacometti was commissioned, I think, in 65 to make a series of portraits of um, uh, Matisse um, that would be um, stamped on coins. Um, and there was one drawing of Matisse made by Giacometti on which he was standing. Because at that time, Matisse was already in a wheelchair, but th there was one drawing, drawing of Matisse standing. And that's the one that disappeared from uh, Giacometti's studio. So there was always the strong assumption that it was taken by Genet himself. And indeed, that drawing was sold a few months after to Matisse's son, who was a painter, by a friend of Genet. So, it was like, yeah, he took the portrait of Matisse probably because he knew the cuts out. How come his writing looks like cuts out? Um, so I ended up making cuts out of the, un of the yet non-archived. So they stay as those pieces of paper that they have been for for 40 years. So this gives you a sense of uh, how much I'm uh, um, suspicious <laughs> towards the archives.
The Circle was also a project that I developed for many years. It could have been produced right after the Tempest Society because when I was making the Tempest Society, I was already thinking of, uh, of the, the Circle. Uh, the circle originated from the, from the same research conducted around the movement of Arab workers and its theater groups, Al-Asifa and Al-Halaqa. And by the way, Al-Halaqa in Arabic means the, the circle, but it also means the assembly. So that's why the, the piece is titled The Circle, as, a, as an homage to one of the two theater groups of the movement of Arab workers, Al-Halaqa, and also to the polysemy of that word in Arabic. And the circle focuses on the birth of the movement of Arab workers, how the theater groups were created in two different uh, cities in France, in Paris and in the South, Aix and Marseille, and how one member of one of those two theater groups ran for the presidential election of 1974. So it's literally a piece about public performance as a civic gesture. Because what uh, the candidacy of uh, that member of one of the theater groups, he used as a pseudonym, Gileli Kamel. The candidacy of Jilali Kamel was not the candidacy of an individual person. It was the candidacy of a community, of a group. But what they were um, stating there is, um, although we are undocumented, because they were all undocumented, including Jilali Kamel, although we are undocumented, we are citizens. So the, the power of the statement relies in, in, the, in this new conception of civic membership that frees itself from the conception of citizenship of the nation state. And this is being revisited by two French uh, from Marseille, both of Maghrebi descent. Uh, Mia is the granddaughter of a Tunisian migrant, and Luca is the grandson of an Algerian migrant. So it's already two generations. But nevertheless, equality is not achieved. So they, they revisit the history of the movement of Arab workers uh, that has been forgotten in France for decades. Um, I'm probably the first artist who have produced works on their, um, on their story. But I, I expect more to be produced, and it's, it's important that there are many works produced uh, on them, um, because they are extraordinary pioneers who were not acknowledged as such for a long time, but whose uh, work also contradicts the um, narrative of the fathers and the grandfathers who were docile. They were not docile, not at all. Uh, and it's important that the children and the grandchildren know it.